Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. All right, good morning. We are reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 this morning. The Bible's in front of you in your pews. It is page 814. Pews, chairs, whatever we have here. All right. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thanks, Greg. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear from you today. I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. Help us to realize, to know that we're hearing from the ancient of days that we just sang about. And teach us to abide in you now. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Y'all go ahead and sit down. Well, um, today we're continuing in Matthew. We're picking up right after he heals the paralytic and has this victorious bout with the Pharisees. He forgives sins as one who has authority on earth to forgive sins, and they're going on their way. But before we get into the text, I think we need to do a little work in history today. Because you see, in the Jewish mind, living in ancient Roman-occupied Palestine, the terms tax collector and sinner were equal. They were very similar. The title of tax collector carried very negative connotations for them. I mean, I think the type of negative weight that we would really have a hard time wrapping our heads around. This is the sort of negative weight that, like, burglar or thief carries for us, but it's worse. It's worse for them. See, the Jewish people felt very deep animosity, resentment, even hatred towards tax collectors. And there were were several good reasons for this animosity that they felt. First of all, across all time, across all peoples, no one has ever liked paying taxes. Amen. No one enjoys giving their hard-earned money to the government, but especially not a government as oppressive and cruel as the Roman Empire. The way that the Roman Empire collected taxes was designed to encourage Corruption. I mean, they're managing large portions of land. They've got to figure out a way to keep people in line. And here's what they would do. Rome would buy Jewish populated regions, provinces, and they would hire locals to collect these taxes from these territories. A tax collector would bid, among others, for the tax collecting contract for an area because as long as Rome received their due taxes, the collectors were allowed to keep anything they overcollected. The Jews viewed these tax collectors as greedy, traitorous, betrayers of the nation of Israel. Remember, these were Jewish men. 
that were doing this. And they were doing this at the expense of the poor, taking more than was required so that they could fill their own pockets. And, and they did. They did fill their own pockets. People, people would be taxed for just about anything and outrageous rates. They could be taxed on the spot here and then move down the road and hit another tax collector and they would be taxed again and they had to pay it. The tax collectors were backed by the Roman Empire and they normally had Roman guards with them to enforce the tax collecting. The tax collectors were essentially professional extortioners. That's what they did for a living to their own people. The only option that the Jews living in these areas had to retaliate was just to ostracize them, shun them from society, treat them like pagans. This added another layer to the bad dynamic that existed here. Since they were shunned, tax collectors formed their own cliques with other tax collectors normally. Most often, tax collectors were made extremely wealthy by doing this, which further separated them from the lower classes who in turn further resented them because they were forced to support the lavish lifestyle of the tax collectors. There was bad blood between these types of people. And it was entirely wicked what they were doing. This utter disdain of tax collectors kind of sits in the background of our text today. And it's important that we remember it. It's right in the middle of this tension where Jesus just walks in. He just breaks in. Let's go to verse 9 in the text. As Jesus passed on from there, on from the paralytic, on from the Pharisees, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. This Matthew is the same Matthew that becomes one of the twelve. It's the Matthew that wrote the gospel account that we're reading, the Matthew that's at the top of the page. In Mark's account, in Luke's account of this event, they refer to the same man as Levi, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus. This is similar to how Peter was also referred to as Simon and Cephas. It was commonplace in this time for people to have been known by multiple names. But look here. Notice who Jesus is calling. Think about how everyone in this time hated, hated tax collectors, and they wanted nothing to do with them. The disciples wanted nothing to do with tax collectors. And who does Jesus direct his attention to? Hold on, guys. I gotta go pick somebody up. He's going to the tax booth. And I want us to sit in this for a second because there's something profound, there's something intentional happening here that we need to see. Let's put this moment here in verse nine in the context of the greater narrative of Matthew so far. Remember what's been happening in the chapters previous? What has Matthew been telling us? In chapter four, Jesus rebukes Satan directly in the wilderness while he's starving with nothing more than the word of God. He goes on and he teaches the sermon on the mount, as Matthew says, as one who had authority and not like the scribes. He touches a leper and he makes him clean. He heals a paralyzed with a word. He commands a storm to stop and it stops, and he tells demons to go, and they recognize him, and they say, Son of God, what have you to do with us? They go. They listen to his command. He even forgives sins as one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. I don't know, I don't know if we've gotten the point yet, but Matthew is saying Jesus is, is God. Jesus is God. 
That's who we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with a mere man. We're not dealing with, we're, we are dealing with one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt bodily. The one who is in the beginning with God, who was God, and who is God. The one who Hebrews says is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what Jesus, or what, who, you want to know what God is like. All you need to do is look at Jesus. Look at where he's going. Look at what he's doing. And where is he going here? He's going to the tax booth and calling a hated sinner to follow him. He's drawing near to the one who otherwise needed armed soldiers to get people to come near him or to keep people from killing him. Jesus is not doing himself any public relations favors here. Jesus is not exactly putting together a varsity team. We've got some uneducated fishermen, and now we've got a tax collector. I mean, doesn't Jesus know that we don't talk to tax collectors? He's, they're shunned. Listen, church, talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to be like Jesus, then we are going to have to get close to people that if it weren't for Jesus, we would not otherwise. If we're going to tell people about the good news of Jesus and his saving work on the cross on their behalf, on our behalf, then we're going to have to accept the fact that you are going to be around on purpose, people who you probably don't like. And I'm not talking about begrudging, joyless, God told me to love you, not like you, so here's a list of reasons you're a sinner type of obedience, right? I'm talking about humble, joyful obedience to the king of kings to make disciples by demonstrating the patience and the grace and the love of Christ by the power of his spirit at your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, at your schools, and everywhere else possible. Jesus is demonstrating here what he is about. This is not lip service. And if we want to be like him, then he's also showing us what we need to be about. This is what Jesus does. This is who he is. This is who God is. It should not surprise us when he makes a left turn and calls someone who is considered a lost cause. <laughs> it's what he does. And Matthew's reaction to this calling was not complicated, was it? Because scripture says he just rose and followed him. He got up and he followed him. And I, I want to be like that. I want us to be like that. God says, let's go. We go, right? Go to verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. We learn explicitly from Luke's account of this event that they are actually in Matthew's house. Matthew, interestingly enough, does not mention that in his account of this event that this is his house. In fact, if you go and you compare Luke's and Mark's and Matthew's account of this event, Matthew's really seems like the most modest, just bare facts, which I think speaks to Matthew's character in writing this, his motive in writing this. It strikes me as somebody who has experienced Jesus in all of his highness and holiness and he does not want to be central. Matthew does not want to be central even to his own story. He wants Jesus to be front and center. I mean, isn't that counter to everything we're hearing in society today? 
Isn't it amazing that you can meet Jesus and love him so much that you don't even want him, you don't even want to be central to your own story. You want Jesus to be the central aspect to your story. This is what Jesus does to people. Take notice of what Matthew is doing. Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew obviously elated at this level of acceptance, throws a feast in his house, and he invites all of his friends. <laughs> it wasn't enough for the disciples to have to deal with one tax collector. Now they're in a host of tax collectors, people that they could not stand. I mean, I think we can venture to say that this was an uncomfortable social situation for those involved and not a great look for Jesus. I mean, if he's looking to win influence among the people, this is not a great strategy. If Jesus' goal was to rise to prominence, this is not the way to get the power players in your corner. It says that Jesus was not concerned with winning popularity among the crowds. It's as if Jesus had a different purpose entirely while he was here. Here's the point. Here's what I want us to walk away from. Jesus, who is God, was prepared to sit at table with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, can I just continue to say, this is the same God, this is the same God that spoke to Moses out of the bush and said, I am. Tell the Israelites, I am. Yahweh is coming to get you. This I am means to be. Existence itself is coming to get you. This is the same God that we're talking about here in the flesh. And where is he? He's not in the finest dining halls. He's not with the most powerful rulers on earth. He's not rubbing shoulders with the religious elite. He is dwelling in a tax collector's house with a host of tax collectors and sinners. He's sharing a meal with them. And in this time, sharing a meal was very intimate. It's far more intimate than sharing a meal with people in our society. I mean, is this not compelling what Matthew is telling us. Is this not compelling that coming off the heels of healing the paralytic and all the other unbelievable displays of power and authority from Jesus, he goes down the road and he calls one of the lowest in society to become his disciple. And then he has a meal with his friends. That, I mean, what a left turn. This is the God we worship. This is why we worship him. It should be comforting to know that the God of the universe is prepared and willing to sit at table with sinners like you and me. Let's move on. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax, collector, tax collectors and sinners? I've realized in this sermon, I will probably have said tax collector-like. 50 times. It's starting to come out a little weird. Remember that last week, in the previous passage, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, and now they're going after his behavior. The Pharisees is directing this question not to Jesus, but to his disciples, which I think is interesting to take note of. And the Pharisees' question was not rooted in curiosity. They're not wanting to know about his methods. They're, in fact, accusing Jesus. They're saying, they might as well have said, your teacher should not be dining with sinners and tax collectors. This is wrong. We don't do this. Does your teacher really know what he's doing? Should your teacher really, uh, should you really be following such a teacher? 
This question assumes that the asker is in the right and knows better than Jesus. And I think that we can say that this was inevitable. Jesus' public meeting with people who were widely considered undesirable, who were considered sinners by the Pharisees, would certainly have been thought of as unacceptable behavior. But pay attention to how Jesus answers them. This is all important. Verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now I think we get to the heart of this passage. Jesus first says something that is so logical. Those who are well, they don't have a need of a physician, right? The sickness here is sin, soul sickness. It's the sickness that causes corrupt minds and hearts, like the hearts and minds of the people that Jesus was dining with, <laughs> like, the one, like the hearts and the minds of the people who posed the question. And Jesus is the physician. Jesus gives the Pharisees these teachers, these masters of the law, a little homework assignment. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea. The Pharisees would have known, would have known exactly what was going on. Jesus is calling them out. In Hosea 6, a passage that the Pharisees really would have been extremely familiar with, the assumption of the Pharisees is not that they are sick, it's that they are well. In fact, by all of their standards, they're righteous. But Jesus is calling not into question their devotion to the rituals of the day, not their devotion to the law. He's calling into question their hearts. It's important for us to see. The Pharisees could not see this. In Hosea's day, God's people were good at bringing sacrifice, but they had forsaken mercy and love entirely. Hosea 6 actually starts by telling the people of God to return to the Lord. Despite their devotion to burnt offerings and sacrifices in their hearts, they are so far from God. They have forgotten the words of the Shema, which is foundational. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. Love for God was supposed to be the number one priority for the people of Israel. This is what Hosea is trying to correct. The whole law, including the offerings and the sacrifices, was to serve as an expression of this love for the Lord. Hosea 6.6 6 is essentially a summary statement and reflects one that you see over and over in the Old Testament, like Psalm 51, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Or how about Proverbs 21? To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Or my personal favorite, Micah 6. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, oh man, 
what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Jesus is telling the Pharisees they have missed the point. They are in the same boat as the people of Hosea's time. He's not saying that sacrifices and offerings of the law are unimportant. They certainly are. But he's, he's telling them that despite their rigorous obedience to the law, they don't know God. And they don't display love toward God. They were so careful to keep the practices but failed to capture the heart qualities the Lord expects of those who claim to walk with him. They failed to reflect God's heart toward other people. They were like doctors who refused to be around sick people. I mean, what good is that? Church, this problem is not unique to the Pharisees. It's not. There are many today that believe that their dry, joyless, loveless work will earn their way into a right standing before God. There are also many today that believe that they are not sick. They have no sin. They have no need to be made well. And they're blind to their sickness and blind to their need. Jesus concludes here with really the true answer to the Pharisees' original question. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does Jesus dine with tax collectors and sinners, bad people? Because he didn't come to call the righteous, good people. He came to call sinners, bad people. The great physician draws near, near those who are sick to make them well. Jesus' table fellowship that the Pharisees were challenging was in fact fulfilling God's desire as described in Hosea 6.6. 6. It was fulfilling it. It was demonstrating it. Jesus was not seeking to advance his earthly social status Jesus did not come to spread new moral teachings. Jesus did not come to socialize with those who think that they are righteous. The Son of God has a far greater purpose, and it's to show compassion and love to sick sinners and offer them spiritual healing. And this healing came at a great cost to Christ, doesn't it? I mean, we know the story. Jesus is not just arbitrarily forgiving sin. No justice involved. This love, this compassion is costly to Christ. And God shows us what our sin cost on the cross of Christ. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You See how that works together? So if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling sick, if you're feeling tired or weary or undesirable, if you're feeling like there's no way that God sees me or wants me or loves me in this moment, I hope, I hope you've seen the heart of Christ here, the heart of Christ that he demonstrates to Matthew, that he demonstrates to the Pharisees. I hope you know that his heart, his very heart, God's very heart is full of compassion and love for you. 
That's who he is. He is not distant. He has drawn near. And he has drawn near because he loves you. He cares enough to have drawn near. Even people who don't want him. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer that we leave this place refreshed, humbled, joyful, reminded of your heart for us sinners. Sick people don't bring anything but their need. Lord, we need a healer. Lord, it's my prayer that those of us around us in our lives who don't know you would would come to know you, would accept this healing that you offer. Jesus, you said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once we realize our poorness of spirit, we are that much closer to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for calling people like Matthew, like tax collectors. Thank you for loving sinners. We need it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.